So um, we've been practicing very uh, diligently all day today, and retreats on retreats. Uh, the retreats going. Uh, I can see that uh, Sunday's schedule is up on the board already. Uh, so even the end of the retreat is not so far off in the distant future. So we want to make the best use of our short time together, for sure. Tonight I'd like to talk about relaxation. Uh, relaxation within the framework of vipassana, or insight meditation. And of course, when we talk about the relaxation of in insight meditation, uh, we're talking about the relaxation of inner freedom, relaxation of peace, peace that's unconditional. Just think for a moment, take a couple of moments and think about what you, what the word relaxation means, like what association comes, like what activity in your life brings you relaxation. My guess is everybody has at least one, hopefully. When we talk about relaxation in insight meditation, it's very different than what many of us think of in terms of the conventional forms of relaxation. Uh, When we live on this planet, working and going about um, there are, of course, many uh, forms of relaxation. They change, you know, they change with cultures, they change with time. Uh, certainly one of the main forms of conventional relaxation uh, is uh, television. And I think uh, if I've read a variety of different articles that estimate the average time an American spends in front of the tube, and it's usually somewhere around five or six hours a day, uh, which is really a lot of time. Uh, given everybody, you know, people are working really hard too. I'm not quite sure how they manage five or six hours in front of the television, but must stay up late, is my guess. Late night TV probably depends on those folks. Uh, but uh, television can be a form of relaxation. Of course, the latest and most current one um, is the internet. You know, surfing the internet can be relaxing. Um, there are physical activities that we engage in, like. You know, I go to the gym. I find that very relaxing. Um, you know, sports activities, bicycling, those kinds of activities can be very relaxing. And uh, reading can be relaxing. Listening to music, um, vacations. You know, hopefully your vacations are relaxing, for sure. Um, and you know, people relax over food. And of course, in this in this culture. That there's a lot of dependence on alcohol and drugs for relaxing too. And so oftentimes what we associate with relaxation when we look around, now none of these may be forms that we engage in, but uh, in a conventional world, uh, oftentimes relaxation means escaping from stress, you know, finding a refuge from the stressful activities that, are, that we find demanding or overwhelming. And it's not to sit in moral judgment necessarily over any of these activities, but it's to begin to point to the limitation when we rely solely on these kinds of forms of relaxation to work with our stress or work with our discontent or suffering. 
And what we can see is that these forms of relaxation that folks often turn to, these refuges that folks turn to, um, there's a strong tendency to misuse them. You know, maybe through addiction, kind of obsessing about them, but also uh, escaping, um, trying to suppress or bury or avoid um, thoughts, emotions, feelings, reactions, difficulties that one is encountering in relationship. And so folks often become very dependent on these different forms of relaxation just to get by, just to to survive. And and quite honestly, I'm incredibly sympathetic um, to that um, choice, you know, trying to find a refuge given the conditions that we all encounter. But so often what happens with uh, when we rely on just solely these kinds of forms of relaxation is that it's just a temporary fix. It kind of helps us get by. But in the long run, the problem is it can be disempowering. It can be disempowering because what's happening is we're using a lot of our attention and a lot of our energy, not only to distract ourselves, but to get absorbed in these places, you know, to get absorbed. in a way that allows us to avoid you know, what we need to begin to engage in, what we need to begin to take a look at. And so when there are forms of suffering or discontent, you know, the particular approach in meditation, and you can certainly see that in a very direct way when you come on retreat, because we're paying attention in a very sustained way, is that it's not about avoiding. You came to the wrong place if you wanted to avoid uh, your mind or avoid your body or to get away from all that. No, no, when we sit down, we sit down with all of that. We sit down with the full spectrum of our experiences, the things that we like, the things that we don't like, our preferences, our reactions, our emotions, our mind states, the bodies that aren't feeling particularly comfortable. You know, those feelings of discomfort or adjusting or people being around that maybe you don't approve of or don't enjoy. But what we're learning to do in a very fundamental way, and it's really a radical shift, is to begin to face and take a look at our actual experience, to develop skills so that we can begin to explore the difficulties in our life, the difficulties within ourselves, the conflicts, the unresolved issues, and begin to take a look in a very open-hearted way so that we can learn to do something different, so that we can find an alternative, so that we can find peace. And what we've perhaps also at least reflected on or discovered is that we can't think our way out, you know, can't think our way to peace. You know, we can be really, really smart with like an IQ of 150 or 160 or whatever, really high. Um, It's a lot higher than mine, I can tell you that. Um, But that doesn't really bring peace. You know, it might make, bring a high paying job in a university or someplace like that, a lab or something. 
but it doesn't bring peace. In fact, some, some teachers have theorized the smarter you are, the harder practice is. Um, because there's such a tendency to rely on thinking. You know, it, it's a tremendous power that we have to think and analyze and figure and problem solve. But we can't think and figure out and fix and um, problem solve our way towards inner peace. You know, it, takes, it takes another kind of intelligence. It takes a different kind of approach. Quite different approach than what we have been taught or what, that we've learned along the way. We all know how to think. That's quite apparent when you sit down. Uh, that we cert- the brain definitely knows how to think. It doesn't think very creatively, though. I, I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, there's a strong tendency for very repetitive, habitual thinking. Has anyone noticed that? Like a lot of kind of self-referential thinking where you're the center of the universe. And that universe is actually pretty small uh, most of the time. The Buddha said that Dharma practice is like swimming upstream. You know, the downstream is kind of conventional wisdom, kind of the conventional way or the, the way of our conditioning. And upstream is really working with our conditioning. And training the mind to begin to question our conditioning and to see if there's room for transformation, room for change, room for approaching life in a very different way, rather than just going with the flow, going with our conditioning, going with our habits, going with all the things that we've accumulated and learned. Instead, taking a look for ourselves in a very fresh way, unburdened by our past conditioning. So the relaxation of inner freedom, how does this come about? Well, it comes about by training the mind, training the mind to actually relax. It's not so easy. It requires a lot of patience. And it certainly requires wise attitude. In fact, the very deep and profound form of relaxation is cultivating this wise attitude. Narayan and I have studied with this Chan master for a number of years. He recently passed away, I think, two or three years ago. He's from Taiwan. He spent half his time in Taiwan, half his time in the States. And he was a very famous and well-known figure in Taiwan and um, not so well-known uh, in America. And I think part of the reason was because he didn't speak English. So he needed, Well, he did speak some English, but he didn't teach in English. He always had a translator. I think that sometimes keeps somebody from being famous who might actually... Um, deserve more kind of recognition or whatever. So we studied with him maybe for about 10 years or so. We used to sit retreats every year. And I remember when we first started uh, practicing going on retreats, uh, they were basic, mostly they were like 10-day retreats. And he taught a practice very, very similar to this. Very, very similar. In spirit, even the method was kind of similar, but there was just a lot of common ground between this particular, his approach to his tradition and our approach to this tradition. Um, but the conditions, you know, when, I, when we first started doing uh, retreats with them, the conditions were quite, um, well, they were pretty challenging, pretty arduous. There was a four o'clock wake up, and uh, you practice as a group, which included eating and all group walking meditation and all group sitting meditation in the meditation hall. So, 
pretty much the only time you left the meditation hall was to go to the bathroom. And that was in an outhouse outside uh, in the winter. Um, so you didn't really want to dwell too long uh, outside. Um, so we spent a lot of time indoors. And um, I slept in the meditation hall with 40 other guys on the floor. And a lot of these guys did not sleep very soundly. And they were constantly yelling and screaming and having nightmares. Um, so even when you when lights were shut out at 10 or 10.15, 10, it wasn't particularly restful. You know, you'd wake up like crouched in your sleeping bag in a corner somewhere, just kind of <laughs> hoping uh, that you were just imagining that the four o'clock bell was ringing. Uh, and of course it was ringing. Uh, it seemed like as soon as you shut your eyes, you were opening them again. Um, so it took some adjustment. And I remember when our first retreats, and we, you know, we were kind of doing this mostly because we were really inspired by his teaching. Uh, but also there's something about the conditions and stretching us that felt good. We had practiced for a long time, and this was a different environment. Um, felt very fresh in a lot of ways. But he used to talk about retreats being like a vacation. And I used to hear that, and I'd kind of scratch my head. And i think, this is a vacation? you got to be kidding me. You know, like, no way did this feel like my vision of a vacation. Uh, I definitely have a different idea than something like that. Uh, but you know what he was pointing to? It made me think a lot. And what he was pointing to was a deep aspect of his particular teaching and one that we've brought into this practice in a very full way, which is um, wise attitude and practice. And what he was pointing to was when he said retreats are like a vacation, um, what he was pointing to was that if you approach practice with wise attitude, it can be profoundly relaxing. And what he meant by wise attitude is not having any particular agenda, not attaching to a particular result, not attaching to a particular agenda, or not buying into what my experience should be or shouldn't be. Because that's where a lot of the struggle lies. That's where a lot of the tension and the stress and the discontent and the frustration and the discouragement and the resignation arises. It's in our relationship to what's arising. It's our attitude. It's our thinking that it shouldn't be this way. So one person in the QA mentioned sleepiness. Sleepiness is not a form of suffering. By that? Yeah, it's not. In fact, we want sleepiness some of the time, don't we? Like at 9.15 and 9.30. And then so often people get into bed and they can't sleep. And they've been sleeping on the cushion all day long or struggling with it. And then you lie down and you're wide awake. Uh, it's, it's, it does happen actually quite frequently. Uh, but sleepiness is not a form of suffering. Our attitude in our relationship to it is where the suffering lies. It's sitting there thinking, no, I, can't, I didn't come to this retreat to have this experience. No way. And it's that resistance. It's that judging. It's that framework. It's how we hold that particular experience that determines whether we suffer or not. Because, as I said in the Q&A, and it, this is, couldn't be truer, the worst thing that's going to happen is that we're going to fall asleep. And that's not that bad. You know, but just think about the mind moments and the 
how, how challenging it can be for us to be sitting there in an erect posture, feeling sleepy and feeling tired. It's because we, we don't like it. Our attitude around it is non-acceptance. We evaluate, we compare, you know, really obsessively sometimes. Uh, we compare ourselves to the person we're sitting next to. Uh, we evaluate each sitting, right? Like one sitting today was good, the rest of them not so good. And maybe it's good for a few minutes. You be mindful of the breath and the mind wanders and that's a failure. So that whole notion of success and failure, something that's really been deeply conditioned in us, that framework creates a lot of stress for us. A lot of tension. A lot of tension. So we place demands on our experience. We place demands on ourselves. We have a certain set of expectations of ourselves. And so wise attitude is beginning to work with that attitude. It's not like if I say, okay, be allowing and accepting, which is really wise attitude. Being allowing and accepting of what the actuality of your experience is. That's not easy. I know that for a fact. That attitude did not come to me easily. I had to earn it. And I also had to see the amount of suffering that not supporting or encouraging or strengthening that attitude or reminding myself, not reminding myself how much suffering that caused me. And it certainly caused me endless hours of struggle. Endless hours of having things not the way I want them to be and then triggering doubt. Doubt, worry, thinking I wasn't doing it right, questioning, second-guessing. And this doesn't just happen on retreat, folks. I'm sure you know that. definitely happens in our everyday life, too. The conditions are ripe for it. The conditions for unwise attitude are ripe for us. The whole system often depends on it. We're constantly be evaluating, constantly trained to compare ourselves to others. And so that kind of pressure we need to gradually, slowly work with. If that's the state of things, if that's how we approach practice, okay, we'll just try to be mindful of it and aware of it. See if we can cultivate a more allowing attitude. Be patient around doing that. You know, one, one investigative question, we've already mentioned it maybe once or twice in this retreat, but one investigative question that helps with, uh, I think it's a wonderful question to ask and one that we can, you could ask probably at least several times a day, if not more. It's an investigative question, which is, can I make room for what's arising? When something difficult arises, like sleepiness or physical pain or restlessness, can I make room for it? Now, can I make room for it doesn't mean that you just have to be totally passive in the face of it. We've already suggested different ways of working with sleepiness or physical pain. But it's an attitude. And asking that question is very important because we want to point ourselves in that direction of trying to make room for our actual experience. And of course, we'll encounter resistance. We don't like certain experiences. I'm not saying... I'm not even saying be allowing of sleepiness. Okay? What I'm saying is when sleepiness arises and then there's resistance, okay, make room for the resistance. Be aware of how we're relating to the sleepiness. So take that 
as an object of mindfulness, something to be aware of, because that's where the suffering is. So rather than convincing yourself, or me convincing you, that sleepiness is okay, maybe it isn't okay in your mind. And that's okay. But be mindful of the not okay. And then we don't feed the resistance. We see it as another mental state. We can begin to question our relationship to it and open to another possibility of relating. If we're aware of the resistance, we're not feeding it. What the Buddha said was, whatever we, are, we practice is what gets stronger. So if we're aware of resistance, we're not practicing resistance. We're changing things dramatically, dramatically. Don't underestimate the power of mindfulness and awareness. Because when we can be aware of resistance, it doesn't grow stronger. It might seem to intensify, but a lot of times that's because the, we're seeing it more closely. And some of the resistance can be very ingrained and conditioned. So even the resistance, being mindful of the resistance, doesn't mean that it's going to dissolve right away. You know, we might feel anxiety, for instance, and then there's resistance to that feeling. Okay, so under the conditions of anxiety, resistance, judging, shame, self-criticism, aversion. Okay, so, okay, that's the way it is for us. Let's face it sometimes, right? It's really unpleasant. Feels limiting. Okay, we don't like it. So be mindful of the not liking. Get a sense of that. Let that energy in. See if you can make room for the resistance. It doesn't mean getting lost in the resistance. It means trying to bring more awareness, more loving awareness, more open-hearted awareness. And when we have this attitude, when we have this particular approach, the mind starts experiencing freedom and more confidence. Because now we're we're developing that ability to be with our experience the way it is, rather than being tormented by how it should be or shouldn't be. In some ways, what we're talking about is being authentic, being with our actual experience, not fitting our, uh, uh, not trying to strive for some ideal of fitting ourselves into some mold or some preconception about what we think a good meditator experiences. No, there's no such thing as a good meditator. No such thing as a bad meditator. There's no such thing as a meditator. (laughs) It's just meditation, believe it or not. But you don't have to buy that. thing about attitude in terms of what we're talking about with relaxation, of course, is unburdening the heart. You know, it's a deep form of relaxation. You know, we can be in paradise. Some of us have been, you know, physical paradise. But when the heart's burdened, we all know what that's like. You know, it's not inner paradise. Conditions might be pleasant, might be around pleasant people. But the mind rules, you know, with where the mind is. You know, that's where our happiness and suffering lies. And we bring our mind everywhere. We bring them into retreats, we bring them into vacation. We bring them, our mind follows us around. And one thing that I think is extremely helpful is uh, to realize that we don't have the answers. 
Sometimes we think we're supposed to have the answers. But it's actually very helpful to realize. And probably everybody in this room already knows that. Otherwise, why come to a retreat? We don't have the answers. We don't. um, Practice is very humbling in that sense. You know, when you sit with yourself, it's not like, um, you know, it's a big pride booster, let's say, or that you just think you're an incredibly wonderful person uh, after you've sat with yourself for a day or two. No, you, you realize that there's a lot of pettiness and a lot of comparing and a lot of things that we might not like about ourselves. But we also learn that, there, that um, we don't know everything. And, and one crucial area that we don't know about is we don't know about, um, we don't necessarily understand the nature of our suffering and how to, how to liberate the mind, how to liberate the heart. You know, something very fundamental and basic. And when you think about it, what could be more fundamental than that? I can't think of anything more fundamental than that. You know, if you look at the planet we're living on, if you look at the way the world is working, if you look at your own self, What's more fundamental than understanding the nature of suffering and freedom? You know, that essentially that's what the Buddha said he was interested in. He was interested in suffering and liberation. And to me, that's like, boy, that's really clearing it away, you know, in a big way and getting right down to kind of the essential human dilemma and one that we really haven't resolved. And there's a lot of consequences to that both personally and globally. So to me, knowing that I don't have the answers is actually very relaxing because then I don't have to defend, I don't have to pretend, I don't have to carry myself a certain way or any of that. I can just say, yeah, sure, I'm a student. I'm I'm trying to learn. And I am. We're working on it. Um, Dharma practice is a lifetime. It's not a uh, two-day retreat. It's not a seven-day retreat. It's not a three-month retreat. It's not five years of practice or ten. It's an ongoing learning discovery process. And that's actually what we're doing, is we're not so much accumulating knowledge, but we're developing a capacity to look and learn and discover. That's what insight means, to, to, to see into, to discover in a very fresh way, and we're actually developing minds that can do that. So that when we leave the retreat center and we go into our everyday life and we start dealing with the conditions and the relationships and all the things that we encounter, that somehow we're developing that ability to learn from that experience and begin to take a look at that experience and to take a look at some of the habits that we engage in and begin to see very clearly how they're not working for us. So crucial to wake up to that fact. In, in the process of waking up, sometimes, you know, they sometimes describe uh, Dharma practice or, or Dharma as kind of, it's opening to bad news. Uh, but it's not just bad news. We're opening to really wonderful things too. But we do, wait, do have to wake up to the things that aren't working for us. Now, what allows us to take a look at our life in a very fresh way, you know, we're talking about an attitude that's being more allowing and accepting, uh, making room for our experience. But what allows us, we're creating the conditions for deeper relaxation, for more clarity, for more wisdom, uh, for more peace. What allows us to make this exploration or make this journey uh, is an innate quality that everybody in this room has and outside of this room 
And that's the, that kind of intelligence that isn't just thinking about things, but it's the kind of intelligence that allows us to, to be with our experience, to observe it in a very open way. And that, of course, is mindfulness, that non-judgmental attention, that open-hearted attention, so that when we bring mindfulness to the body, we're actually meeting the body in the here and now. When we notice that emotion that's arising or that reaction that's arising in the mind, uh, we actually, when we're mindful of it, we're meeting, we're encountering that particular experience, but we're encountering it in the present moment. So it's unburdened by the shoulds or shouldn'ts, or the coulds or the couldn'ts. It's actually meeting that experience just as it's arising, the actual experience itself. And the power of mindfulness is that it has not one gram of judgment about any particular state of mind that you have, any kind of physical discomfort you might have, any situation or relationship that you find you're in, doesn't judge that. You know, it meets shame, doesn't add to it, it just recognizes it. Ah, that energy. What's that energy feel like? It allows us to begin to explore it. And it's innate. It's already in you. It's not something that you have to get. It's not something you get at a retreat center by any stretch of the imagination. Retreat center is just a set of conditions that are supporting and strengthening and nurturing this particular innate quality that you already have. So it's a, a, a place to educate, to learn, to, to uh, learn skills that actually will apply in your life. It's extremely useful, tremendously useful. And then when mindfulness, silent attention, awareness, merges with thinking, which it does, it influences thinking. Instead of conditioned thinking, we're thinking, we're relating to the present moment. And, and when we begin to relate to the present moment, what happens is there's more clarity, of course, because we're in touch with the actuality. We see much more clearly what's appropriate. Uh, and our responses tend to be much more discerning, you know, much, more, much wiser and much more compassionate. And that's just a natural outflow of being mindful and being present. We feel connected to our experience and we can learn from our experience. And that's very inspiring and faith-producing. Both Narayan and I have worked with many uh, students over the years, over a long period of time, and gotten to know them pretty well over 10, 15, 20 years sometimes. Uh, and and, and, and that's, the, that's one of the main areas that we see over and over again is that folks learn uh, how to do things differently. You know, the conditions might be the same, the conditions like in families or dynamics or situations and work might just be very, very stressful environment, but folks learn skills. Folks learn to develop the kind of resources that one can count on in life, where one can actually learn to relax and settle amidst, amidst, it's a hard word to say, in the middle of conditions. So mindfulness, that very powerful tool, certainly serves wisdom, clarity. It's at the service of wisdom, clear seeing. Calm is something that we've talked about. We're looking at another form of relaxation. Calm, of course, comes from steadiness of attention. Okay, that's what we've been emphasizing. 
the beautiful thing about calm, and I know this was true for me early in my practice that uh, did several long retreats. And you know, as you can imagine with long retreats, there is a tendency to develop, uh, we mentioned samadhi or concentration, steadiness of attention, um, and, that, and a certain degree of calm comes. And it, it's not always wisdom, but it's calm, which can be very invaluable. But for me, when I first started practicing, my mind was just so agitated and restless and anxious and worried and all sorts of things that when I started practicing and, and um, experiencing calm, you know, it was so inspiring for me. It felt like such a refuge. I felt like I was really beginning to relax into the present. Um, and it was inspiring because I realized that I had that power. You know, this calm emerged from my own effort. It wasn't... It wasn't you know, I received some inspiring teachings that would help me, but the calm came from my own effort. You know, in, in, in this case, it was working steadily. You know, keep coming back to my primary object. Keep, keep working the method, and calm came. And just to see the fact that the mind can um, find some degree of peace and inner contentment within itself is such a lesson because then, because we're so conditioned to look outside ourselves for that peace. And to realize that um, through training the mind, one can experience very deep peace. Now, the peace of calm is limited. It's conditioned. Okay? It takes a certain amount of set of conditions. But it's a powerful resource and one that we can call on uh, with practice. And calm serves us in terms of wisdom, clear seeing. And the way that does that, the way that works is that that steadiness of attention that we've been developing, when we begin to open the field of mindfulness up, which we'll do tomorrow, tomorrow morning at the, I'm not sure which sitting, but we'll do it uh, in the morning. Um, That steadiness of attention allows insight. It supports the development of insight. Insight comes from sustained attention in the here and now in observing the changing nature of the experiences. In other words, seeing experiences come and go. You know, it's one of the aspects of insight meditation. It's a crucial insight to have because seeing the changing nature of the experiences leads to greater equanimity. So that if we're subject to sleepiness, if we're paying attention to it, the bell rings, we get up, we start walking, we don't feel the sleepiness as much. Seeing the changing nature of it allows us to begin to relax a little bit more. Because what creates a lot of suffering for us is that we tend to think of things as solid, as unchanging uh, in the moment itself. Even if intellectually we know it's changing, experientially it feels like it isn't. Um, And so often there's a strong identification process that goes with um, grasping on or clinging on or identifying with changing experiences. So like if we're feeling anxious, it's my anxiety. So we, we lose touch with the actuality of the experience, which is there's just anxiety happening. It's arising under certain conditions, but we claim it as me or mine. Okay. So calm allows us to pay attention in a steady way, and then we begin to learn from our experience. And one of the things that gets in the way of learning, say we might know we're having a particular experience, but that, so there's a certain amount of insight a certain awareness that we're having this experience. But we're unable to pay attention in a sustained way. So the, the awareness is fragmented. So that we don't often get to the source of our suffering. We don't actually see 
you know, necessarily how we're relating to that experience or what the nature of that conflict is around that experience. But when the attention gets steady, we can begin to see the sequence. We can begin to see that a condition arises and the mind reacts in a certain way. So that steadiness of attention, when we open the field up, that's, that comes out of this work, working with a primary mindfulness object, is so useful. Because seeing the changing nature of experience leads us in, another, in, in a direction of another very deep and profound level of relaxation in practice. Remember, what we're going from in Dharma practice is from conditioned forms of relaxation, a reliance on conditioned forms of relaxation, to an unconditioned relaxation, which means a relaxation in the middle of conditions, a peace in the middle of conditions. We're developing those resources to do that those inner resources to do that. It's extremely empowering. In one form of empowerment, one deep form of relaxation is equanimity. Just think about how valuable that is. My God, it's incredibly valuable. When we think about the provocative conditions that we encounter on a daily basis, we certainly need equanimity to hold all that, not to be pushed around by it not to be caught in reactivity. Equanimity is a non-reactivity. It's a relaxation. It's a capacity to hold experience. It's, it's poise. It's not indifference. It's not detachment. It's balance. We can be close to an experience. We can feel it. But we have the inner space to hold it instead of being overwhelmed by it. And that comes naturally out of insight practice. It's one of the strengths of insight practice because it comes out of developing a capacity to be with yourself in all the the whole range of experiences that we have through the day. Think about the the uh, how many experiences we had just today. You know, so about, you know, countless experiences. And most of them we weren't even aware of. But some of them we were because we've been paying attention in a sustained way. And we develop confidence out of that. If we can be with ourselves, it is a tremendous inner strength. It serves us so well from day to day, moment to moment, situation to situation, relationship to relationship. Just being with ourselves. just read an article today. Oh, I shouldn't be reading, should I? <laughs> Whoop. Well, I'm working. Uh, but this was an article on mindfulness, so it applied. Um, and what it did was there was a study recently. And what it was was, very briefly, it was a study on loneliness. Right. Yeah, kind of hard sinks when you think about that. Loneliness. Um, it the study, of course, did two different groups. And one of the groups got involved in uh, mindfulness meditation, actually, and practiced mindfulness 30 minutes a day, different mindfulness exercises, sat one day a month, I believe, during this study. It was, the study lasted, I think, a year or two. can't remember all the details. Um, 
But what, and then there was the other group that didn't meditate at all. And, you know, they had different ways of, you know, I don't know, putting, trying to objectify the study and who knows if it's totally objective. But what they discovered was is that the meditators, that loneliness grew in the non-meditators and people's perception of loneliness, the way they held loneliness, so the degree of happiness rose in the meditators. And I thought that was very interesting. It's because their perception of loneliness was different, the way they held it. They weren't so overwhelmed or so lost by it. And what, they, what the article was pointing out was oftentimes we think of loneliness, and I'm sure that, there's, you know, that we need the social context and we need connections, and I'm sure that's true. I don't doubt that at all. But what's interesting about the study was it wasn't about that. It was about finding it inside yourself. And what it, the article was very good because it was just on a mainstream magazine or something. They said it's the quality of connection. You know, it's that quality of connection that determines whether we feel lonely or not. And so in meditation, we're developing a connection to ourselves. Okay. It's not necessary that we can rely totally on that by any stretch. We're humans. We need friends. The Buddha even talked about noble friendship and how valuable it was. Okay. We can't do it on our own. We all need teachers and people to practice with. But at the same time, that was, I thought, a very interesting thing to discover. And that kind of information, you know, to, to these people, I'm sure they're reading these articles, is like, you know, really surprising and shocking. And people spend like years doing these studies in the brain and all that. And, you know, the things they come up with is so, like, a lot of it's kind of mundane. I mean, if you practice, you see it right away, uh, that your relationship to things radically begins to change. And that practice does lead to inner peace. Uh, and you don't have to study it in a lab for 10 years to... But, you know, these folks are trying to, you know, uh, validate it, I guess, scientifically. But if you're a meditator and you've been at it for a while, um, you don't need that validation. You can see it very directly for yourself because the issues that you face, anxiety, worry, fear, doubt, sadness, self-doubt, one's relationship begins to change to those things. We develop a capacity to hold it and hold it in a less reactive way. The fundamental shift, and I think this is one of the strengths of Vipassana meditation, is that we develop the capacity to be mindful of what our reactions are. This is such an emphasis in Vipassana. And this is one of the reasons I think I love this particular approach to practice. Because what we're paying attention to is not just what we encounter, the conditions that we encounter, being present with those things. But we're also including in that field of awareness how we're relating to those conditions. And so our reactions, our relationship to what we're encountering, if we're talking to someone, we're listening to them, we're being present, but we're also aware of what our reactions are to those, to those folks, you know, how we're speaking, how we're reacting to what they say. And so we're bringing awareness into our relationship to things. Tremendously freeing, because what happens is we're not feeding. We're not unconscious anymore. We're not practicing those reactions. We're practicing mindfulness of those reactions. And so the potential for waking up and for letting go of those reactions, for what we call deconditioning the mind, transforming that reactive mind to a mind that's much more creative and responsive, that happens out of practice. And it happens as we include the full range 
of our experiences, including our reactions to things. So if we're standing in line for lunch, and the lunch line is moving slowly, there's a reaction to that. Be mindful of that reaction. Include it in the mindfulness practice. We'll say more about this next uh, tomorrow in the Vipassana practice. But that's so. So all of a sudden, you know, all the focus is on oh, this condition. Why doesn't this line move? Why doesn't this line move? And there's suffering in that. No doubt about it. Impatience. Okay, maybe it should be moving faster. Who knows? But it isn't. So that's what's happening. How are we relating to that? Look at the suffering around that. The impatience. The expectation. The agenda. We take that in in a very open-hearted, non-judging way, non-self-identifying, self-criticizing. We see it and we don't feed it. Now it might come up again, might stay around for a while, but we keep taking that as a practice. And what we're practicing is awareness. And we're learning. We're learning to do something different, fundamentally different. We're waking up. We're letting go of the suffering and discontent that torments us. And the potential for inner peace becomes a reality. But it only becomes a reality through our effort. It's not that people are special. All these folks that write the books, I don't think they're special. I really don't. I think they've probably earned it. Okay, and that's what we're doing. You know, we're putting our time in and we're discovering, you know, it's a gradual process, I'd have to say. Um, No magic pill. Uh, But it's within our capacity to transform our minds, to experience that unconditioned peace, you know, that freedom. I guess that's it. (laughs) Either I've run out of notes or thoughts. I don't know which one. (laughs) The notes are useless anyway. Um, So let's just uh, sit for about a minute. Thanks. Mm -hmm.